Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. I didn't have nothing to eat this time on this episode of the Let's Go Eat show. Nothing. I had uh, coffee and water. Now, my uh, guest had a uh, chipotle chicken salad, which he uh, did very well with. I'll tell you who the guest is in a second. Well, you already know who it is. It's uh, Ted Wilson, former mayor of Salt Lake and uh, former rescuer and former uh, head of the Heakley Institute of Politics. And uh, he's just a great guy. Uh, so he had a Chipotle chicken salad, and uh, the producer of the show had breakfast. Uh, he had uh, bacon and eggs and uh, toast. I didn't have nothing, nothing to eat on the Let's Go Eat show. It's kind of a weird decision, isn't it? Well, I'd eaten a little while before and uh, wasn't really that hungry. But when I asked the producer of the Let's Go Eat show, hey, could I have just a little piece of that bacon there? It was like it was like he was going to cry because I wanted one little snip of bacon, but he did give me some, so I had a little bit of bacon on the Let's Go Eat show this time. Now, here's what I need you to do: uh, when you listen to this interview, well, you could do it right now if you wanted, but listen to the interview with Ted Wilson. Uh, I want you to uh, make sure that you go to uh, your Facebooks and your Twitters and all of that and uh, and like this show. Go to Facebook, go to Twitter, um, and you can do all the liking and, and passing it on and do all of that stuff if you would for me, please, just to let us know that you're out there and listening to this podcast and that you like it. Uh, and then uh, what I need you to do is send me um, uh, some bacon <laughs> because that little tiny piece of bacon I had – during this interview was great, and I really, really want more. So you can send the bacon to me, Bill Allred. Uh, you can send it to uh, send it to uh, uh, Bill at x ninety six dot com. That'll that'll work. Send me bacon. All right. Now here it is: the interview with Ted Wilson. Um, we talked about a lot of stuff off the podcast when we weren't recording, and then you know. So some of this, we talked a lot about his wife, Holly Mullen. I don't know how much of that is on the, the podcast. It was some pretty interesting stuff about Holly, about her, about she had surgery on her toe. I don't think that made the podcast. Anyway, here it is, recorded at uh, 50 West Cafe, uh, down right down here, 50 West Broadway. It's the Let's Go Eat Show, former mayor of Salt Lake, Ted Wilson. Here it is. I can't quite imagine what possessed them to do it. Well, they think they've always had that policy. That's what they say anyway. And that this guy that's the Mormon critic online, I forgot his name, dug it out of Handbook One, which is the book that goes to stake presidents and bishops. Now you, so now look, take me. You apparently, I think you have something. You know something about this that I don't. All I understand about it is, 
it said in the Tribune what I read was that someone leaked this information, that it wasn't... Now, this suggests to me that this was some kind of a new policy that was being written into the um, instruction manuals. Isn't that the case? Well, I don't know, Bill. Uh, Can I get some water? Same thing, please. Um, I don't know, Bill. I think that the church, as they say anyway, had that policy longstanding. They say this has always been the policy. That's what they said. I th- and again, I'm referring back to my memory of reading the Tribune this morning, which, which is not always 100% <laughs> at my age. <laughs> By the way, who are you and why are you talking to me? I am Bill Allred. No, I just, because uh, I got the, see, I got the impression, now I'm going to have to go back and look again, because yeah. I got the impression that this was a kind of a new formulation of, you know, they're kind of going back through and saying, okay, this is how we're going to have to deal with this now that now that uh, same-sex marriage is legal. This is how we'll have to deal with this situation. This is our, this is our, we're clarifying policies here. This is how we'll do it, and we're, re- we're writing, and this is a new kind of a new writing of it. And uh, they were in the process of formulating that, and they set it down in this manual, and some they hadn't officially said anything about it, and someone... Now, you said this You said this Mormon thinker, blogger, somebody who leaked it, you said? Or yeah, as I read in the paper this morning, he dug through and looked into handbook number one, apparently, and saw this. And, and, and who is that? I uh, wish I could remember his name. He's, uh, I think, in Logan. He's, John DeLynn. Okay, that could be He's going to be on our show. Oh, is he? Yeah, and I just talked to him on the phone. He didn't say anything about that. Yeah. Well, he probably will. This is a bigger get than we thought we got then. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you got a big uh, get there. On our What Do You Think Utah show, for those of you who don't know. You've got a big get. Uh, are, we, are we are we recording all this? Yeah, you're four oh. minutes into the show. Oh, I didn't know. <laughs> Our guest is Ted Wilson. Uh, Ted Wilson, former mayor of Salt Lake, uh, former head of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Um, yeah, we just sat down here at 50 West and started talking like we talk. I uh, get really close to the microphone too, Ted. Uh, you bet. Sure. Um, it's going to be hard to get my sandwich in between my mouth and the, and the microphone. Oh, you'll figure it out. I'll figure and we it can out. stop. And you, guys, mean, you guys know how to do that. You've done it for yeah. some time, right? I'm a champ at eating on the air. It's, uh, we call this the Let's Go Eat show, and it's, it's odd. It's because I've always thought that eating on, on the radio is just fine. Uh, come to find out, lots of people don't care for it. <laughs> Your wife is really good at it. Holly Mullen, uh, when she was on this show, we had... Uh, we went up to uh, Maza, and uh, as a matter of fact, I had to compliment her throughout the entire show. I said, oh, this, I, this is a woman who knows how to eat <laughs> during a show. She, she could just, she, because this is supposed to be just like, you know, you're, you, uh, like you're out with friends, and ha- yeah. you're having a chat while you have lunch. Yeah. That's all it is. So you, well, Holly drives me crazy, because she can eat like that. Yeah. She loves to eat. She's got a huge appetite and doesn't put on a pound. I know. She's like a she's and a I, petite person. And I'm walking around with Ernie yeah. attached to my, yeah. below my ribs here. Yeah. 
and I'll eat a decent meal, and then Ernie, Ernie goes, I want pie, and I have to hit him. <laughs> have you got an Ernie? You don't have an Ernie. Ah, yes, I do. You look oh, strong, yeah. like you go to the gym or something. You no, know, I, uh, I just saw a picture of me five years ago. I couldn't believe it was me. I was so fat five years ago. <laughs> I looked like a blob. Anyway, so, Ted, uh, yeah, we were talking about the – and that's not going to be the focus of – of this uh, podcast, uh, talking about the this, but everybody is talking about the the Mormon Church today, saying that uh, uh, same sex couples, and, and that's not a surprise. Same sex couples, I think it is kind of a surprise though that it's um, that the hard line they took and said, not only do we not recognize those marriages, that's obvious, but they're apostates, and that means. Really, they they are subject to being excommunicated, and that's a hard, very hard line. But then saying that their children uh, can't be blessed or baptized, um, that's a very harsh thing to do. Well, Bill, I think it comes off to a number of people as sort of anti-family. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of these kids that gay couples are adopting mm-hmm. are the non-adoptables. Yeah. Racial kids, um, kids that grew up poor, and if they're not adopted by good families, either hetero or yeah. or gay, then they wind up as wards of the state, and they can live until they're eighteen, twenty-one years old um, without guaranteed love and affection. I mean, there are a lot of nice foster families out there, but there's also the money element, mm-hmm. and a lot of them do it for the money. Yeah. And, you know, you don't have the same biological connection. And so, I don't know, it's a very, very tough doctrine. The church certainly has a right to believe anything it wants and do anything it wants, for sure. No one's questioning religious liberty. I I think the the question is, uh, does this really reflect what Christ would have done? I mean, he walked around the Middle East uh, kind of blessing everyone and... He who would cast the first stone, the, the yeah. love and affection of Christ, is, I think, being questioned by people. It, uh, uh, the sins of the fathers should not be passed to the children. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's got people very upset. And if you, consider, if you think that's a sin that, that, that the same-sex couples are committing, which, I mean, I don't, yeah. but if, if you think that's a sin... Okay, but how is that somehow passed to the children? I don't, I don't get that. That's right. Um, you, you now. I, uh, I read uh, in your Wikipedia bio. You, you're, you're a Mormon. Still a Mormon? I'm still a Mormon. Officially, I'm, I'm not active anymore. Uh, I've been inactive for about ten years now, but I have high regard for the church. I see them as a valuable community partner. I have high regard for the doctrines of the church. Uh, but I have to confess to being very upset by this one. Mm. And, and you know, in conversations with my friends, uh, even some very, very good Mormons I've talked to are very upset about it. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. Take a bite of food. You yeah, can do okay. it. Okay. Well, yeah. We're having... I'm not, a... I'm not as good as Holly. But... <laughs> well, your wife is really... A, uh, she's a captivating person. I remember the first time I met her, You though. think Ted got the better better part of the deal in that marriage? She, <laughs> yeah. she stepped down a little bit? The first time I met her, I can't I can't remember why, but she she kind of, how are you? 
good. Nice to see you. Uh, you're, um, you grew, grew up in Salt Lake and, and, but, and, but, and never really left. I mean, you've had a, you could have gone anywhere at some point in your life and you saw a lot of the world, but you always chose to come back here. Why, why do you well, think that is? Um, I don't, I love this place. I mean, it is me. I, my dad had a business right here just around the corner from where you are. And Doing what? On West Temple. He had an awning shop right over here in the old Hotel Miles, which is now... What's a hotel on the corner? I forgot the name oh, of it. Oh, it's, uh, it's Perry? Perry. Yeah. In the right-hand corner, as you face it from 3rd South here, mm-hmm. far right corner, my dad had an awning shop. Mm. And on Saturdays, I would come down and bon ami his windows, put that white stuff on mm-hmm. his windows and wipe it off. And that would assure me a ticket to the old theater, the center theater over on uh, Second South. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd go to a movie, and then I'd come back and go home with my dad. And so I was sort of a downtown urchin. Where did you, uh, where'd you live? Uh, we lived on 20th East, 27th South. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember really well the gypsies that were on the street here that told fortunes for a living. The old Havana Club, which was a real dive. And I would walk by there when I was a kid, and all the drunks in there knew my name. <laughs> Teddy, Teddy, how are you? And they were very friendly to me, and they wouldn't let me come in there, which they were protecting me. They mm-hmm. didn't want me to be around the evils of alcohol. And so I had, I had these friends along here, and there was a row of assay offices right here on West Temple uh-huh. between 3rd and 2nd. And in the window of those assay offices, which came out of the Hot Rock mining days. These are play, places where people could bring in their, yeah. their, their gold ore and yeah. say, uh, see if they had gold, but with yeah. gold fine. Assay to check yeah. them out. Yeah. And there were all these crystals and stuff in the windows and... Uh, it was a very friendly city in those days. Now, Second South, people don't remember, but I remember even as a kid, uh, now I grew up in Ogden, but as a kid, when I was a kid, Second South had quite a reputation, didn't it? Oh, it was a tough part of town. Yeah. And then West Second South was the prostitute zone yeah. west of uh, what is today a Gateway, going down toward where UTA is on uh, 8th or 9th West down there. And, uh, yeah, that was a tough part of town. It didn't go to that part of town. It's still a little rough down there, but, I mean, back in the day, that's where you went if you wanted to find a prostitute. Yeah. Or, or that, that's where a, polit- a politician got busted down there. Yeah, Alan, Alan Howe. Alan Howe. A very well-liked and very effective congressman got picked up down there solicit- soliciting two prostitutes yeah a democratic he was that's right he was a united states congressman yeah yeah and a great guy everybody liked alan and what a tragic thing that was yeah an end to his career certainly and he's no longer with us is he oh alan died at least 15 years ago yeah yeah it ruined his career and uh, pretty much the rest of his rest of his life i would think he became a lobbyist in Washington. Oh, did he? And had some oh, so it did ruin his life. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> no, he he had a couple of really good accounts did back okay. there in his older years and mm-hmm. did very well. I think I mm-hmm. talked to him several times when I was going back and forth mm-hmm. to Washington as a mayor, and 
Alan uh, was cheerful and mm-hmm. did okay. Yeah, I think he did yeah. fine. Uh, so, so as a kid growing up in Salt Lake in a downtown urchin, because your dad had a, a business down here, I, I, doesn't I mean was it a prosperous business? You know, I think he made good money. We were in. He died at the age of fifty-one when I was yeah. fourteen. Uh, but I think up to that point, he did very, very well. He hmm. didn't leave much. My mother had to go to work on taking two jobs. And greatest woman in the world for me and always made sure I was in school and did my homework and loved me to death. And hmm. my and I miss my father. And he had a drinking problem hmm. that was real. Hmm. And... Uh, I talk about it today because I've always been very cautious. I'll have a glass of wine once in a while, but I'm not much of a drinker. Yeah. I think my father taught me in a way by a bad example. But but beyond that, he was a great fisherman. He was a. I assume he was a. He was not a mean drunk. He was no. a. He just liked to. He would get drunk yeah. and would he get melancholy? Was he a melancholy? Yeah, drunk? kind of melancholy and mm-hmm. and not himself. And yeah. uh, so we. Uh, <clears throat> When he left this world at the age of 14 for me, I had to go to work. And well, you, you had no brothers and sisters? I had one brother. One brother. Yeah, and he and I wound up going to work to help my mom. Mm-hmm. And I washed dishes at Chinese Food Kitchen on between 4th and between 5th and 6th South on uh, State Street and ran into Johnny Kwong, the owner. Oh, yeah, I remember Johnny Kwong's. Do you remember Johnny? Sure, he had that pink gorilla in one of his places. Yeah. <laughs> Johnny yeah. Kwong's yeah. And, and the Hawaiian. And yeah. and it had its own rainstorms. It would rain yeah. in there when you were yeah. eating. <laughs> when I was a, in co- a young college kid in Ogden, we came down to that place for one of our uh, or theater parties, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Johnny was like a dad to me in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. He, he says, I'm going to teach you, young man, how to work. And he mm-hmm. did. Mm-hmm. And not all, but work with pats on the back and work with a little raise every so often. The guy was very smart. Mm -hmm. And so Johnny became really very helpful in those age 14 to 17. I worked for him. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I was 17, I drove China food deliveries around town, (laughs) which Mm -hmm. was kind of fun. Got to know the city really well because I went everywhere in the city. Did you have any idea uh, growing up in Salt Lake uh, what you wanted to do or be? Did you? What were your aspirations? I, I think when I think back to my teen years, I loved the whole city. I had my aunts lived down on the west side. We used to go play near the Jordan River, as filthy as it was mm-hmm. <laughs> in those days. Um, I had I went to a junior high school that had kids that peeled off both to East High and South High. So I wound up at South High with a passel of friends up at East. So I think as I grew up, everything in Salt Lake City affected me. I had been downtown a lot. I had seen elements of the city that weren't so good, like, you know, bars and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I think I grew up feeling Salt Lake City was my nest. Mm Mm-hmm. It still is. Yeah, and what what did you want to be? You're going you're going to high school. Did you think I'm going to be a, a, a what a lawyer, a doctor? A, what did you think you were going to be? I was really afraid that I wouldn't be anything. I was young. I was lost my dad. Um, I had gone with him 
about six months before he died where he tested out a new job. I think the current running his business was not working so well in Las Vegas. I came back. I weighed 90 pounds. I started at South High School, little tiny guy. Not a huge guy now, but I put on a few pounds. <laughs> I'd like to be 90 pounds again. But I was very, I was not confident. You're an insecure kid. I was. I was really, really insecure. But, you know, I was also very social. And when you smile a lot and say hello a lot in a high school, yeah, you become, quote, popular. So one of my friends taught me into running for cheerleader. And I switched over within one year from being a quiet little kid in the background to one that was now all of a sudden kind of confident. Ted was, Wilson, boy cheerleader. I was boy cheerleader. And I loved the cheerleading. It was a ton of fun. We got to drive the girls to the games, our cheerleading pals in our cars. Uh, and I became more social. And by the time I graduated, I, I think I had sort of had confidence in myself. But I still didn't know what to take at the U. Yeah, you knew, so you you did well in high school, and, yeah. And uh, you, but you, so you're gonna you go to the U. I went to the U, yeah. And and you ended up getting a degree in poli- political science. Yeah. yeah, I ran into J D. Williams. Oh uh, yeah, he was quite a he's quite a legend up there. Oh yeah, and he became my mentor. I took a freshman class from him, uh, and he was the great lecturer, and I, so I, I said, I've got to get to know this guy. So I went out of my way. My first professor I've ever met, you know, I really got to know. And he encouraged me along, and I think he could see the politic in me. Not politics at that time, but mm-hmm. the politic. And um, he was a warm and fuzzy person for me and, and helped guide me. And then later, after years had gone by, and I, I had done teaching of my own and I've been to Switzerland as a ski instructor I I decided to go into education and teach and JD was there to mentor me when uh, now you're going to college and uh, you uh, have this parallel life when did all this uh, love of mountaineering and mountain climbing start and well, how did that start? <laughs> it started on a bet with some old funny guys that worked with me up in Mammoth, Wyoming. We bet one day that no man could climb that mountain across the river over there. And I said, if you got $20, I'll climb it. I'll hang a sheet from the top so you can see it, be verified, and pay me my 20 bucks." So I went with a buddy, and we walked up this dirt face which had a limestone cliff at the top. And we'd, we didn't mind going up. You know, we were in combat boots. We didn't have any climbing equipment. We were just two kids out doing something really stupid. And we got up and we somehow got through the limestone and we hung the sheet and we almost died coming down. I mean, it was really touch and go. But we did get down. We crossed the creek. We went back and, and I said, look, take a look. Look through these binoculars. There's the sheet hanging up there. And this old guy looked at his friend. I don't see no sheet bill, do you? Nope. We didn't get a dime. We didn't win our 20 bucks. But something clicked in me about walking up mountains. You've done it, Bill. You've been been to the great mountain itself. And um, so 
The very next weekend, I climbed Mount Electric, the highest peak in Yellowstone, even though it wasn't a technical climb, it was a scramble. Mm -hmm. But it was exposed, it had a lot of air beneath your feet, and I was a climber. You really, now you're you're up there summer, working a summer job, just like at the lodges and stuff like that, like kids do. Yeah, the next year I went to the Tetons and got a job with the Grand Teton Lodge Company at Coulter Bay. Oh, yeah. That's where Dylan's mother worked yeah, up there. Yeah, my mom worked there. Oh, as really? A, she worked there for several summers and loved it. I think a couple, yeah. Uh, yeah interesting. Well, you've been there. It's just a mm-hmm. fantastic place. Sure, beautiful. It's beautiful. Beautiful place. And every weekend, I would run off and do a climb and climb the Grand Teton that summer, climbed uh, Mount Owen, uh, Mount Tiwanot, and some of the bigger peaks. And um, it became an important part of my life did you now did you learn to uh, did you did you have mentors and people who said come come around, I'll show you how to do this for real I did yeah. I, I took a lesson early in my career from Willie Unsold who was the yeah I know that name big name in the 1965 American expedition to Everest when Americans first climbed it Willie not only climbed the mountain he put up a brand new route on the west ridge which is far and beyond more difficult than the in the route that's used now, the South, the south uh, Call route. And um, Willie gave me a day of climbing instruction. Um, I had friends that I was very involved with, my lifetime climbing friend, Rick Reese, who is, um, lives up in Bozeman, Montana these days. We still get out together and do things. Uh, now, is it true that you knew Yvonne Chouinard back Yeah. Then? Back yeah. in the day when he was, yeah. no, nobody knew who you, now m- maybe, Dylan's probably going, who the hell is Yvonne Chouinard? Uh, but, <laughs> right. but, but if you know anything about anything, uh, Yvonne <laughs> Chouinard is, uh, well, he invented modern climbing, essentially, yeah. because he invented, didn't he invent the piton on uh, the, uh, the, um, the, the, the clip, the, uh, oh, the friend? Yeah. The, the, the. The reversible cam, I yeah. think you're talking about, that you yeah. can put inside a crack and then it expands. Yeah. That, that was actually developed by Ray Jardine, mm-hmm. but but Yvonne perfected a lot of them, new ones. Mm-hmm. He was uh, the innovator. Uh, I met him when he was living in a cave. <laughs> <laughs> There's a little cave over there in the Tetons. It's an old incinerator for what had been the CCC camp in the 30s. And he and another guy had taken up residence inside of it. And out out there on the uh, outside, they had a sign that says, Lazy Ass Ranch. (laughs) 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 And so I got to know Yvonne, and he gave me a couple of his original carabiners to become his... Carabiners, that's the word I was thinking of. He kind of invented that, didn't he? Well, the carabiner had been around for a long time. French, I guess, but... Yeah, the, the Germans made one, Stubai made one, but it was very heavy, and so he made these out of aluminum. Oh, that was his innovation. Yeah. He also was the innovator of the curved picked ice axe, which really will stay in ice. In those days, the pick was straight out, and it wouldn't stay very well. So he developed that, and, and a whole generation of new gear came out of that. But here's what Yvonne Chouinard is probably really the most famous for. Have you ever heard of Patagonia clothing? Yes. Yvonne Chouinard. Mm-hmm. He, yeah. And have you ever heard of Black Diamond? Of course. Yvonne Chouinard. That's right. Yvonne Chouinard started both Black Diamond 
and Patagonia to That's compete great. with each other? Well, he just started both of them and yeah. then said at one point, I better split these companies up. Uh, I think I'll stay the head of Patagonia. That interests me more. And uh, I, was it, I guess Peter Metcalf. Peter Metcalf and two other people bought it. Bought, bought, yeah. bought the Black Diamond portion. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I mean, I mean he's a genius. Yeah. And kind of uh, always been an eccentric, and I guess is still an eccentric. Yeah. Do you ever see him anymore? Uh, I saw him this summer. Oh, yeah? Yeah, he was at Peter Metcalf's 60th birthday party in the Tetons, and I had a nice chat with him. Did you, did you, and, did you remind him of the lazy ass cave? Oh, yeah, we always talk about that stuff and laugh and <laughs> stuff. Where's he living and, now? Still in a he, cave? He, no, he lives in Ventura. California, yeah. but sure uh, and that's where his business is located. And come a long way from the cave. Yeah, and you know I was able to help uh, the job recruiters with Avon because I knew him, and I also knew Peter. When Peter decided to move Black Diamond to Salt Lake, I was mayor at the time, and it felt good to recruit yeah. the kind of business I really dig. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. So it was fun. So you so you're doing all of that stuff and then coming back and going to college and uh, at yeah. the University of Utah, studying political science and uh, are you getting and and you're skiing in the winter and uh, and and uh, when did you go teach skiing in uh, for, in Switzerland? When did that? Happen? Well, there was a very famous climber who also had a clothing line named Royal Robbins. Oh, sure. And Royal came to Salt That's still, Lake. That clothing line still And around. he and I did a couple of routes out in Little Cottonwood Canyon. And he said, before I left, he says, are you a ski instructor? And I said, yeah, I, I, I instruct for the University of Utah. And he says, John Harlan, who's at the Lazan American School, needs a head ski instructor this winter. And I can't go. Would you like the job? And I said, he said, if I get John to accept you, we'll work it out. So I wrote a fantasful letter. You didn't text in those days yeah. or send emails and said, if the job's open, I'd be very interested. And I got a, uh, directly, I got a telegram back saying, be here by October 8th. <laughs> <laughs> so I pulled up stakes, took my wife, and we went to Lausanne, Switzerland, where I lived for a year and w- ran a ski school for a private school of about 300 kids. Did you like that? Loved every minute. It was fantastic. And um, and climbed with John, who John was the best American Alp, alpine climber ever, and climbed with John, did a bunch of routes, and he wanted me to do a new route on the north face of the Eigervond. And the Eigervond is the biggest face in Europe. It's 6,000 feet high. It's very, very dangerous, a lot of rockfall. And I was on the team, as it were, and then my wife came to me one day and said, guess what, honey, we're pregnant. And maybe you better decide whether you're going to be a father or a famous mountain climber. (laughs) I didn't have a lot of choice. (laughs) Or I'll decide for you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I didn't get in on the climb, and then, unfortunately, John died on it. On that climb? On that climb, Hmm. yeah. Uh, so you're back to the United States. Yeah. Uh, you're back to school again. Yeah. Uh, gra- graduate school. You got a master's degree in um, economics. Prior to, the, prior to the master's degree, I taught at Skyline High School for seven years. And then I went off to the University of Washington and got a master's in economics and came back and uh, 
came, went back to the same high school and worked for a guy named Wayne Owens, who was a congressman. From, I've heard of him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Wayne was a Utah congressman, and he asked me to be his chief of staff, and I went back to Washington. and Took your family, or did uh, they stay here? Well, they stayed here, and I was back and forth almost every other week. Yeah. I mean, it's just impossible to live one or the yeah. other, so they wanted to stay here. And we were in the middle with Wayne on the original committee that impeaches presidents, impeaching Richard Milhouse Nixon, president of the United States. And boy, did I get the baptism of fire on that one because I was staff and there was so much to be done around the committee. And I was back there, hardly knew where the men's room was. Mm -hmm. And uh, But we got through it. It was a difficult time in American history. And, of course, Nixon wound up... uh, Resigning from office on August 4th of 1974. And then I came back and went to, and Wayne ran for the Senate, and we missed uh, by Jake Garden beating. Worked for the county, and while I was working at the county, I thought, you know, I kind of like politics myself. I think I'll file for mayor. I can't win. But I could get my name out there in the Democratic Party, and maybe somewhere down the road, I. Who was mayor of us? Uh, who were? Who was mayor of Salt Lake when you filed? Conrad Harrison. God, I don't remember that name at all. Con had been a city commissioner. This is the old commission form of government mm-hmm. prior to the mayor council form. What year was this? This was 1975. Oh, I was not living in Utah at the time. Yeah, I yeah. was. I was elsewhere. And Con was a good guy. He was an older gentleman. Was he a, I think a, a Democrat pretty good mayor. Or Republican? Or? Uh, he would sort of go the way that it would help him. And <laughs> sure. That's, okay. That's <laughs> he was, okay. He wasn't locked in either way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other guy running for mayor, there are three of us, was Steve Harmson. And Steve had run for Congress the year before, 1975 and 74. And Though he had lost, he had gotten a couple of hundred thousand votes out of the county. I think he thought he had a lock on the race. Conrad didn't campaign very hard, and I was out every day just banging on every door I could get my hands on. Nobody had, nobody really knew who Ted Wilson was at all at that time, right? Well, you know, when I first announced, uh, Dan Jones did a poll, and 2% of the people lied and said they knew who I was. <laughs> Yeah. Absolute liars. Yeah, must have. I mean, you had no, you really had no, you would have had no name recognition. Ted Wilson is the kind of name where, oh, yeah, I think. I must have heard that name. must have met that guy somewhere. Ted, Ted Wilson, sure. Maybe, maybe it was the, maybe it was the gypsies down on. <laughs> oh, daddy. Yeah, daddy. Right. Well, I got the gypsy vote, I'll yeah. tell you. <laughs> so I campaigned like crazy and out of some freak of nature. I still don't know how we did it. I beat both of those guys in the primary by five points, sort of what I think Jackie Babcock just did to Ralph Becker, you know. Jackie Biskupski. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Jackie Biskupski. Yeah. I'm sorry, but Jackie, my apologies. And there there I was um, coming out of the primary, the leader, and, and the next day all these businessmen were lined up to give me money. Now, that's a figure of speech, but they really were yeah. wanting, they, they were sensing maybe a new mayor's in town, and so... So that was just the primary. Yeah. Who gave you money to run your primary campaign? 
Anybody? Um, a special friend of mine, I.J. Wagner. Do you remember hearing Izzy Wagner? Oh, Izzy Wagner. I know that name. Yeah. Izzy had been a good friend of my father when my father had his business on West Temple. And he called me one day and said, I like what you're saying, young man. Could I meet you for breakfast? And I went there. He wrote me out a $2,000 check, which was like enough to buy a car in those days, you know. <laughs> and really kind of helped launch my campaign. I also had, since I'd worked for a congressman, I had a lot of good contacts in the Democratic Party. So they helped. Organized labor stepped up. Mm-hmm. Uh, School teachers stepped up and others, and so, yeah, and so election day of 1975, I look at round and I say, remember the Redford movie, The Candidate? Yeah. He's not supposed to win, right. and he does, yeah. and he says, what do I do now? Yeah. That phrase had new meaning for me. Mm-hmm. I really thought, have I overshot myself here? I'm now the mayor of this city. i got to go to work on January 4th and act like I know what I'm doing. I mean, it, it is a very sobering experience. You really didn't have any idea. But you, I, but you got I a know. staff. Yeah, I did. Uh, I you, did. you got a yeah. staff of, of, of bureaucrats. And I don't use yeah. that term pejoratively. That no. Bureaucrats can be a very good thing. That's right. Who are ready to step up and say, let us show you how this thing works. Yeah. This is, the, this yeah. is how it works now. This is the engine. You just got to guide it. Yeah. And if I have any talent at all, it is conceding to others their expertise. I'm pretty good at that. I would never tell you guys how to run a radio station, even though I have some comments off the air, if you'd like. <laughs> no, <sure. laughs> just kidding. No, but that, I mean, that, that really, I, you know, I was just talking to somebody about this the other day, somebody in politics about, uh, this is a young man, and I'm sorry I forget his name, who is Arlen Bradshaw's yeah. uh chief of staff or, or you know and i said no wait how does that work exactly because he, he said well because bradshaw the, the commissioner or the council person and your daughter is on the council because part-time i'm the guy who you know gathers all the policy and all of the things that uh, he's supposed to know and i go and then i tell him what what he's supposed to know yeah and that and uh, and that's how government works he, yeah. you know he's yeah. the engine and then bradshaw's the guy who has to make the decision and say yeah. okay I have this and this and this and this and this yeah it's just the way it works so, and so when donald trump says he's going to hire the best people for the job well in he a sense, really knows what he's talking well about. in a way he's right <laughs> he's right are you he endorsing right. donald trump uh, that no. half of it is right you know what you become the, the relationship's interesting because I think when you're in elective office what you become is sanity control Mm-hmm. And the reason that you're in charge of sanity is that this allows the others to be very novel in what they're coming up with or adventuristic or, hey, I got a great idea. Mm-hmm. And because you're sitting in the chair where the criticism will come from media, from just people, from public hearings, yeah. you're the one that says, does this ring true? with all those people out there that have a stake in it. Mm-hmm. And it changes the it changes the stuff coming from the people around you and makes it real, mm-hmm. I think. And in that sense, it's very lonely because there aren't a lot of others in charge of sanity control. Yeah. Uh, 
And so I always saw the job that way as sort of being an ultimate filter for the people. I know that sounds corny, but it was true. And and that you need to worry about the people around you. And if I have one comment about Ralph Becker, who I think did a good job as mayor, and I think we did well in those eight years, I think Ralph somewhere got a little bit separated from that. I would think that was probably just a little bit too much up in the clouds. Yeah, yeah, and a little more removed and maybe not as available and mm-hmm. didn't come to as many hearings as he should have and had other obligations like president of the National League of Cities. You throw that in with a really difficult problem that anybody has in a third term, and I think people mm-hmm. are going to say to Ralph, goodbye, great job, buddy, mm-hmm. pat him on the back. Well, I mean, whether it uh, was justified or not, I think the, that all really comes into focus when you talk about uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, Burbank situation, you know, where, yeah. where Ralph Becker is saying, well, I had my chief of staff dealing with this issue yeah. for a year. Yeah. And where the proper thing would have been to say, I was dealing with it from the very moment it happened. Yeah. Yeah, I had my chief of staff doing it. And one thing you need to police chiefs, they have to have a big ego. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay? That's just part of the job. Mm -hmm. And I think Chief Burbank did have a good, well-developed ego. Very healthy. I talked to him many times. Yeah. And when the mayor sends over a letter written by his chief of staff, delivered by his chief of staff, there isn't the same kind of follow through that you would want mm-hmm. it to be. Yeah. Yeah. And that that link was broken. Yeah. Yeah, I mean you you have to you have to say chief, I need to see you in my office. Yeah. Right away. Yeah. We have some things to discuss. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. but I had a very similar situation with Bud Willoughby who was a great cop, but he also was very adventuristic about his own image and stuff and he got into some stuff with couple of the city commissioners that was sort of embarrassing for the city and and you know when it was all over people were just all over me to fire Willoughby and I just brought him over one day and closed the door behind him and said bud sit down I'm going to raise hell with you for 10 minutes you get to raise hell with me for 10 minutes and we'll see where we stand at the end of it and we proceeded to do that at the end of that 20 or 30 minutes, we shook hands and pledged to be better guys to each other. He walked out and was a really great chief for the remainder. And I kind of wish Ralph had done that. I'm not sure he, maybe he did, but he's never said he did. Um, and, you know, if you're going to choose somebody out, you ought to give them a chance to come back a little bit. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Because if you want to continue the friendship, you should. And But I had rehearsed in my head what I was going to say, and Bud was caught kind of flat, so I won. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah you, do, you, do get the, you do get the sense that uh, hit, Chris Burbank's career could have, been, could have been salvaged, certainly. There may have been some problems there, but th- that could have been fixed. I think it could have been, and Chris was a great chief. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. everyone thinks that. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, uh, as long as we're on this topic, then I want to get back to a couple of uh, things about uh, you. Um, uh, Jackie Baskupski uh, is apparently the, n- the new mayor of Salt Lake. Um, why do you think it is that she won? 
She had less uh, money to campaign with. Yeah. Um, I think that she identified very early with the considerable help of the other three candidates that were running. So there were four of them beating up on Ralph and saying, Ralph has not been accountable. He hasn't been to enough meetings. He refuses to meet with people. He's got a, another agenda. That's probably an exaggeration, but, you know, politics is the game of exaggeration, and she did a marvelous job with that. And then she smartly shifted gears when the primary was open, over, and sounded very substantive. She came out with an economic plan, an environmental plan, uh, a plan for the homeless, and so forth and so on, and looked like a mayor in that process. So... She did kind of the hard stuff early and then shifted over and did the leadership stuff. And she's also pretty cool. And when I saw her in the debates, uh, she was very solid, uh, very well-spoken, reflected experience and maturity. Uh, And with Ralph facing so many negatives, she didn't have to do a lot more. You know, she did just enough to have a narrow victory. So I congratulate her. I think she'll be a good mayor, and and I think she will be very open to citizen input. The the big thing that she'll have to fear, like the rest of us, is as time goes along and you get a little less excited about public input, you don't grow away from it, you know. Uh, You served... um you were elected three times as mayor of Salt Lake. Right. Um, what in your time uh, as mayor? What what were you what what were you most proud of? What what do you, do you have accomplishments that you're most proud of? Well, the thing I had the most fun with, and I guess in a way I'm most proud of it, was Salt Lake International Airport. <laughs> I went on the airport in the old days because I picked it out as the one issue that the people that vote in the primary election really care about, okay? It helped me get through that election. And then as I got to it, I was able to get a, a group of leading citizens together, create an airport authority, and get the airport that you now have basically built. Now, there have been some additions but mm-hmm. and some remodeling, but it's basically the same airport that we were working on back in those days. Uh, I also think another contribution I made was to change the form of government. We had been an old city commission form with five commissioners that were b- both legislators and executives. Now, what does that I don't understand what that means exactly. It's a hybrid. It's almost like parliamentary government, government when the party elects the prime minister and then they put the government together consisting of members of the legislature. But in America, where we separate the legislative and executive branches, the commission form was an anomaly. And uh, Jake Garn used to describe it. Jake had been mayor, as you know, for four years as flying a plane with five pilots. It just never coordinated, never had a central thrust. And so part of the problem that occurred in the old, what we call the Citygate scandal, where certain commissioners had tried to take over and assign the police chief all the administrative parts of the entire city, talk about chief egos, uh, that had broken down. And so by bringing in a a council 
and the mayor and dividing the task, you get much cleaner, much better directed, and run government. And so th- I think that's maybe the most important thing I did. How hard, what, was that hard to change the form of government? Not once we got to it. It won five to one. But people were reacting to the old city gate crisis that occurred. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it, 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 the change was very important, I think, for even today. When you look back on it, is there something that you think that you just screwed up? That you just went, I just didn't, I didn't. And, and it's, you know, it's long enough now that nobody yeah. will that you just went, I didn't do that right. I shouldn't have done that, done it that way. Or I tried a lot to integrate the west side to Salt Lake City. I tried to be there a lot. I tried to get programs that helped the west side. I don't think I ever really got it done, to tell you the truth. Has anybody ever gotten it done? It's such a cultural divide. It's the freeway. It's the interstate. It's the other side. It's almost insurmountable because that interstate yeah. cuts it cuts the city in two. The, it's a physical barrier that's real in people's minds, yeah. and it becomes part of the culture. And it's also today the place of life for many of our immigrant populations, our oceanic folks, our a lot of our black folks live on the west side, and so they feel a little resentful that they're not getting their full share. They're probably not. And so if I had to go back, I would try to find something new on that particular You, try, you tried finding yeah. things and yeah. just couldn't, couldn't break that barrier is what you thought you could. You need money, and the amount of money you need to better integrate the west side, I'm talking better transportation links, better... Uh, attention to the schools, although Salt Lake City doesn't have much to do with the schools, but you can work with the school districts. More attention to public health. There's a lot of indigenous public health problems on the west side, so forth and so on, that uh, you need money, and, you know, raising more money for city government was not popular in 1977, and it's not popular today. So it's a very hard thing to do. Um, So you... um you uh, ran for a third term and won, but didn't uh, complete your third term. What you you uh, you quit to become the head of the Hinckley Institute of Politics? That, that must have been. Uh, I mean, uh, okay, why did you do that? It, that must have been a yeah. controversial, and uh, people thought. Did they think that was odd, or did they? Did they? Did they? Uh, I don't. I don't remember the reaction to it. Were were people critical of you for doing that? Or? Some were, and they deserved to be. Um, I wish I had never run for a third term. Um, you get, you lose your vision, you lose your energy, and the people around you calcify. In other words, they're too sure of themselves. That would be from your cabinet on down to your front office. And uh, I didn't realize that until I was a year and a half or so into it, that I just wasn't going where I used to go and doing what I used to do. And I didn't have the enthusiasm. So when Bob Hinckley, great old guy, I love Bob, came to me and took me to lunch and sat me down and said, Ted, I want you to leave the mayor's office and come up and run the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Man, did my ears ever perk up. 
I don't consider myself a politician primarily. I am a teacher. I taught for seven years in the public school system here. I taught for a year in Switzerland. I taught 18 years eventually at the University of Utah. I love every minute of teaching. And here's a job that can combine my two interests, politics and teaching. I went home that night after Bob talked to me, and I said to Kathy, I said, you know, I wish I could take this job. This is my lifetime to dream. And she said, why don't you quit? And she's a cautious woman. She was not the kind of person to be (laughs) venturistic. She said, why don't you quit and take it? And I said, oh, people would skin me. She says, I don't think so. You're important, but you're not that important. I mean, this is what women do to you. you yeah, I, this is what yeah. Mullenix really excels Your in. second wife is yes. good at that, too. <laughs> Holly Mullen knows how to do this. Yeah. You're and not that important. I, I walked away, and I drove to work the next morning thinking, man, could I ever do that? I talked to a few very, very close friends, and most of them said to me, well, I think people would hate to see you go, but you're not indispensable. People might feel good about a change to be honest hmm. and uh, now uh, Palmer DePaulis was the deputy mayor no at the time he was my he ran my administrative services department oh, pardon me my public service department hmm. which was over the roads and the transportation and the parks and all of that kind of thing and so I thought about it and thought about it and finally I just said I'm going to do it and I did it and I recommended to the council they pick Palmer as their new mayor, and so that the, worked. So the, the council has the, when, you, when the mayor yeah. puts, has the authority to appoint a new mayor. That's correct. And then Palmer had to run the very year I did that. And he, he ran against Merrill Cook in one of Merrill's uh, charges with the, <laughs> with the windmill. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he won. God and bless Merrill, though. He did win one time. He did. And there's something something about Merrill you just can't put down. Yeah. You know, and I care a lot about Merrill, and I felt very sad that his wife died not yeah. long ago. And uh, I like Merrill. Yeah, he, was, he, always seemed, he always seemed like a very pleasant fellow to yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. Can I, I think so. Can I ask a question? I don't know. Sure, maybe this yeah. is uh, stupid. So, like, you hear of... We were talking about Richard Nixon leaving an office or different people, like, leaving a big, important office. And they say, oh, so-and-so, he left the thing. But, like, what, is, what does that entail? I mean, how do you – you just, you don't, just release you, a public – you, you just release a – You uh, just don't let the door press. hit you in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, do you just release a press release and say when you're done and then walk out? Well, I, had, I had a press conference, and I said – uh, in 30 days, I, I, I will report to a new job at the University of Utah. I will be leaving this job. Uh, I've enjoyed every minute of it, but to be really frank with folks, two years into my third term, I find myself stale. I find myself not as attentive to what I think this city needs. And I want to be honest, I think you need a change. And that's just all I did. I actually got reasonably good editorials out of the two papers. Mm-hmm. I got reasonably good comments on the air from mm-hmm. people like you that talk about civic affairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, people said, well, at least the guy's honest. He said he's not doing it anymore. I guess he better not keep doing it. Mm-hmm. It was that kind of thing. Yeah. People generally were very friendly about it. And so, then you just, you just go into work for the next 30 days and on 
day 30, you have a cake and then walk go home? That's about That's it. That's about how it goes. Yeah, in, in some <laughs> ways, you're mad as hell that they're not mad. <laughs> You know, you kind of crying and saying, "Please don't go." Yeah, you kind of wish they would all come to your feet, and Mm -hmm. you're the king. You should not leave. But very few people did that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, so you go to the Hinckley Institute of Politics, where you stayed for for a long time. Um, At some point, you ran for Senate. I did. When, When was that? Oh, golly. Was that what, while you were at the Hinckley Institute of Politics? Uh, yes. And I'm going to say the year was about 1990, right yeah. around in there. People wanted you to try and unseat Orrin Hatch? Yeah. Oh, it was 82 that I ran against Hatch. I'm Hatch. sorry. I was mayor at the time. Oh, oh, that's what you were mayor yeah. when you ran against yeah. I Hatch. Yeah. Yeah, I actually ran for the state senate once, and I thought that's what you're oh, referring I meant, to. I meant when you ran against Hatch. Yeah, that was 1982. And um, I was sort of the dream of the Democratic Party then because I had good polls as a mayor. and You thought there was a chance that— thought there was a chance, and in those days Democrats could conceivably win, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and I had a ball. I really, had, it was fun. It was a totally fun race. I, really? Here I was running around talking about international affairs. I hadn't gotten to do that when I was mayor. You know, West Jordan was an international affair for me, you know. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, good. And you got to de- you debated Orrin Hatch? We debated. I, How was that? Because, you know, I, yeah. I met Orrin Hatch. Uh, the first, he was w- one of the first people I ever interviewed for the radio. Yeah. When... Probably this was probably in 1982, probably, yeah. right around in there. Probably that election. This and election. Uh, and yeah. I was really uh, uh, raw. I didn't, I'd never interviewed anybody. And I interviewed Orrin Hatch, and I, I, I just remember going, oh, I see why this person is a senator. I see why he is a powerful man, because he looked right at you, and he, yeah. and he didn't forget your name. Yeah. Yeah. And he would talk to you like you were the only person in the room. He yeah. was, I mean, he was damn good. He was just, now I don't agree with a single thing yeah. he espouses, but you can understand why he was where he was. How was it debating him? He was pretty powerful. I was better than he was. Were you? I think I was. I mean, I was scoring in the debates. In fact, he would only give me three. And, uh, in fact, he wouldn't give me any. And he'd see me debate when I ran for mayor, and I think his staff said, watch out for this kid. You know, I was pretty good at that. Hmm. And, um, you know, so was he. So yeah. I'm not trying yeah. to make myself better. I, I'm just good at it. Yeah, because, because back and back then, it, when he, yeah. I mean, he's, got, he's an older guy now, and he exactly. comes across as, but back then he was at his height. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I walk in the Swiss Days Parade in Heber City up in Midway, mm-hmm. okay? And Orrin's in the same parade. And the day's over, and I'm back over at a house that I shared with Cam Gardner. And I have my feet up, and the phone rings, and this nice young voice comes on and says, Is this Ted Wilson? I said, Yes. He said, Would you hold the line just for a second for Orrin Hatch? And I said, Of course. September, it's Labor Day. And Orrin comes on the line, and he launches into this appeal for my vote he says i'm calling i need your vote this is a tough race that i have going 
and I'm listening. I'm listening to this, and he says, and. Besides, you should know that I'm endorsing a constitutional amendment to balance the budget. And I finally said, Warren, this is Ted. And he says, oh, yes, it's uh, Ted Wilson. And I said, no, I'm the Ted Wilson. He goes, oh, really? <laughs> Well, Oren was doing his work, and I was sitting on my can, so maybe I shouldn't talk about this. And anyway, I had him where I wanted. And I said, Oren, we've been trying to get a debate with you. Could you talk to Mike? It was Mike Levitt was his campaign guy Uh running his campaign long before Levitt became governor, Mm -hmm. of course. He was a young kid then. Would you talk to Mike to talk to my Mike? Mike Graham was my Mike. And set up some debates, and he says, absolutely. I'll give you three of them. And I said, okay. He was, all, if that's all you got, I'll take them. That was, and he, you know, he kind of felt like he had to do it at he that was, point. He was yeah. making up for this. I got him right at the right <laughs> moment, you know. And Oren and I have laughed about that over the years. He said, do you remember when you called, or <laughs> I called you up? <laughs> Oren and I turned out to be quite good friends. Really? Yeah. Yeah, he's, you know. Again, he's one of those guys who I, I think is he's not a bad guy. He's just on the wrong side of history. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, Ted Wilson, uh, you also uh, you ran against you ran for governor and lost. Yeah, yeah, I against, did. Uh, did you run against Norm Bangor? Norm Bangor, another guy I liked too go- much. He was a good guy. Really, oh, was a good guy. Was great he? old guy. Yeah. I love him. I really like Norm. Uh, and the problem I had in that race was uh, I was way ahead. I mean. Norm had just raised taxes for education, and he had had Mills Crenshaw, who was a oh. talk host, you oh know, my at, God. at K6. Yeah. And he had mustered the troops, and they had had thousands of people turn up yelling at Norm up in the chamber up at the Capitol well, building. Kind of the precursor to the Tea Party. Yeah, yeah. And so I was benefiting from all of that. I had a 20-point lead at one point, and... Uh, but then my friend Merrill Cook jumped in. Oh, split and the vote. He was running on uh, no taxation. He wanted to chop a huge amount of money out of the state budget. Kind of California Prop 13, if you remember that yeah. old movement. And uh, <laughs> uh, it just really voided me a lot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I wound up losing to Norm by... Uh, 1.2 percent. Huh. It was a cliffhanger. Five in the morning, you know, mm. we finally find out. I was I was ahead by half a percentage point at five in the morning. At 5.15, we found out where the rest of the votes were coming from. Utah County. Oh, well, you're done. Yeah. So it was over. That, that, was, the, that was the only votes that hadn't yeah. been counted. Yeah. yeah. So, so is that pretty much the end of you... Uh, was that was that the last race you were in? Yeah, well, you know, when I was at the Hinckley Institute, I decided to run for the state senate. Oh, you did. That's area. when you did that. And I, uh, Paula Julander had been a member of the House and had pretty well staked that out. And I didn't put a lot of effort into it, and uh, I basically lost uh, at the convention. Mm. So I just stepped out. Mm. That's my last try at it was then, and I haven't done anything about that. And, uh, yeah, now, I want to talk a little bit about um, uh, 
what you think about just where politics is today. And then I also want to talk about the, something that's always interested me about you, and that's your, uh, and we'll go back to your youth and the, and the rescue you participated in. Oh, yeah. And the Tetons and okay. all of that. But this, mm-hmm. let's talk about politics just a little bit more. Uh, what You know, on the local level and on the national level, and you've been in it a long time. You've studied politics. You've taught politics. What, you know, where are we today and what's happening and can things change and will they change? And I think the present mood, which is very unsavorable and, and very difficult for working out problems, problems have to be worked out from the center. They don't get solved on the edge of policy. And, and, I, and I'm going to go back to the same thing that most people are talking about, just the insidious effect of, of, of media, not the, not the kind of media you guys do, but the purchased media. And the kind of labels it can put on people. We're, we're so addicted to our TV sets and the news. And you see this with Donald Trump winning by insult, making himself interesting by insult, making himself appear to be the kind of hard guy we need as a president because he's willing to insult anybody. Um, and his alt, and his, other side, which is Carson, Ben Carson, who takes advantage of how tough that is by being untough. He's sort of the uncola. It's all mixed up. It all has to do with money. The Citizens United decision by the Supreme Court has left the political world vulnerable to the worst kind of, of money manipulation. And uh, somehow we've got to get control of that. Mm-hmm. It, we're a long ways from the old days when you stood on a soapbox. Long ways. Yeah. When you stood on the soapbox, you had to be accountable. You don't anymore. And it's scary for me that this republic that we live in is really being harmed now deeply by denial of global warming, by a terrible... Now, I'm going to sound like a Democrat. I am. By a very poor distribution of income. Mm-hmm. that we don't reward so many jobs in this country at the level we should to attract people to them. And so the infrastructure of our businesses, our government, and all other things deteriorate as a few people have wealth that's so far beyond the reasonable that they don't know what to do with it. They just throw it away on idle stuff. And so I'm a Democrat, and I admit it. Um, and <laughs> you're a brave man. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's uh, it's difficult. Anybody on the horizon that you like nationally and um, and locally? Uh, well, I'm a Hillary fan. I have to admit, being a little tired of her early on in this race, mm-hmm. uh, just her again. You know, sort of. She's been there so long, and she's done so much, and maybe we ought to have a fresh face, but. When she did two things, I thought that debate, she was superb, and I thought that 11 hours before Congress, where she not only endured, but let them know how tough she is, reinvigorated my feelings for Hillary, so I'm a Hillary guy. Uh, I just, I, I really like Elizabeth Warren myself, but she's not going to run. Got to so. get her in there, yeah. yeah she's yeah. great, yeah. yeah. 
Um, so uh, let's go to uh, back to the early days of Ted Wilson to end this up. Um, I, well, it was in the 60s. Mm-hmm. You're in the Tetons. Was it 1967? 67. Mm-hmm. You're in the Tetons. You're working as a park ranger. And uh, something catastrophic happens. I'll let you just tell the story because I think it's fascinating. Well, I was a park ranger, and my uh, secondary assignment, my first assignment was that I was a road patrolman. I used to drive and give people tickets, Uh, although in those days we didn't give many. You you had to really be egregious to get a ticket. (laughs) But I gave out a few of them and drove the roads and encouraged little old ladies not to pick wildflowers. Okay, uh, and but my secondary job was to be on the park rescue team and to respond to any rescues. Uh, and uh, in August of 1967, a young man named Gaylord Campbell and his girlfriend set out to climb the north face of the Grand Teton, which is one of the most difficult climbs in the Tetons. It's a big face, slightly over 2,000 feet high. They're halfway up it, and Gaylord is above her with a rope dangling below him. Climbers climb, the first climber going up dangles a rope behind and puts in points of protection in case they should fall. He fall. He's hit by f- cascading rock. He's knocked off. Lands on the ledge next to her, with a severely broken leg, three extruding bones, a terrible, uh, really bad uh, fracture. We'd seen a lot of fractures and stuff over the years, but that was about as bad as I've seen. So we first aided him, and a three-day saga uh, started. Where now? How did you go, how did you you climbed up to first aid? Um, we were taken by helicopter around to the back of the mountain to a place called the Lower Saddle. It's a saddle between the Middle Teton and the Grand Teton, and from there we could climb up through the Owen Spalding route. It's called the route of the first ascent, and take a ledge over to the north face, and then climb down to where he was. And is that difficult to do? Um, well, you had to be careful. I wouldn't say it was difficult climbing doing that, but you had to be careful. Uh, it was very exposed. If you fell if you off, fell, yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you're done. Yeah, you'd be a second rescue that wouldn't. <laughs> they could put off till next summer if you wanted to. <laughs> so um, we we got to Campbell. Um, there were there were seven of us, but two of our party had been climbing the mountain the very day that occurred and they had heard the party yelling from help so they're waiting for us to come up and five of us were ferried up from down below and we got around to where Campbell was and then three days of going over to get more ropes and bringing equipment over on this little ledge and doing all of that that started and uh, we went through a very complicated decision making process We could potentially take him up using some cable lifting systems we had, but we had to traverse to do that. And when you have to traverse against a plumb line, it's very difficult. Uh, So we decided to go down, but in going down, we had to take a part of the mountain, about 1,900 feet of it, that had never been explored. We didn't know where the ledges were, whether we would hit them when we made the lowers, 
and all of that. So it became a very adventuresome rescue. Um, we carefully would send somebody down ahead to check things out, see if there was a ledge available. And then we made it to those ledges. And when we made it to, we found out it was a giant flake that really wasn't any part of the mountain. It was sitting on a little tiny base, and even the weight that we were could do that to it. it So there were some pretty exciting things. Uh, Now... uh, so you got to him when you got to him. What you, you, did you give him some pain medicine and stabilize yeah. him? And, and well, they, we stabilized him. We got an air splint on his leg. We got him in a wicker basket that we use for rescue. He's got to be in a lot of pain. He's in a ton of pain. And have you seen the movie, by the way? No, your your daughter yeah. made a movie. Shani made a movie of this. And the next morning, after the first night. This helicopter comes buzzing around just a little ways from us. And I look up, and he's got a box in his hand. And he throws the box, and it comes flying. And I reach up to catch it, but it doesn't come to me. It comes to my buddy Lee Ortenberger, and he catches it. And it's got morphine in it for Campbell. So we all shot up in the rescue. (laughs) (laughs) I would have been tempted. We were very tempted (laughs) (laughs) to make this rescue a lot easier for us. But no, we give it to Campbell. And and, uh, And and you had food with you. Yeah. And And then through some complicated loorings, and at one point, two mathematicians on our team, Bob Irvine, a Weber State math professor, and Lee Ortenberger, a a top-level mathematician for Sylvania down in Silicon Valley, they're dropping rocks and timing the sound coming back to determine how far we have to go so we won't go further than the cable lowering device we have. Because if we did that and there's no ledge available, we would be swinging in space with no way to correct it. And they turned out to be 20 feet short of their estimate. But we were able to swing it over into this ledge that was sloped and we made it. It was very exciting. <laughs> anyway, that was the rescue. How many days? Three. Three days. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To get Gaylord, uh, what's his last yeah. name? Campbell. Gaylord Campbell. And, and yeah. his, was his girlfriend gone at this point? Did you get her down yeah, right we, away? We immediately took her around that second ledge mm-hmm. that I talked about and got her down to the lower saddle and flew her down. Mm-hmm. So she was gone, taken care of. Gaylord Campbell. Yeah. And he, he turned out to be okay. He was okay physically. He skied the next winter. He criticized us to death. No kidding. He did, yeah. He didn't do this, and they didn't do that, and they should have done this and should have done that. You got it. You sound just like him. Oh, my God. Really? (laughs) Yeah. So you didn't have – it wasn't one of those heartwarming stories where we we still see Gaylord every year and – well, my daughter sent a woman, one of her directors, back to his home in Minnesota to interview him, and he still holds that position. The guy's as old as I am, and he's still convinced. Let me tell you what those him. bastards didn't do. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Actually, it added some drama, and it made the movie a better movie. So we're not <laughs> we're not mad about it. You won uh, an award for that. You and, yeah. the, I guess, the rest of the guys on the team. What's yeah. the award called? Uh, it's the Department of Interior Valor Award, and we were invited by Vice President Humphrey to Washington, where we had this beautiful award given to us, and people cheered and clapped, and 
we made a lot of press around the country. The New York Times was at the rescue, Washington Post, and some other news agencies. And so it, became, it was printed up in Popular Mechanics and several other major magazines. And Pretty exciting. So it was exciting. You, yeah. you, uh, you were a hero. In addition to everything, Ted Wilson, <laughs> hero. <laughs> Uh, Ted, it's been, it's been, uh, oh, and what's the name of the movie your daughter made? It's called The Grand Rescue. If people are interested, just go to The Grand Rescue on your browser, Mm -hmm. and it will take you to the trailer about this movie, and you can read about the movie there. And Jenny is right now working with um, KUER, and they're trying to get it out on the national PBS, I think, mm-hmm. Dis- distribution system. Mm-hmm. Cool. So it should go out on that, and um, she's going to have another showing in Salt Lake. But you guys haven't seen it? No, no. Have you got a video machine down here? I could bring a disc down. Uh, yeah, sure. Some, yeah, yeah. I'll bring it down one day, and we'll have lunch and watch it. Okay, okay. The Grand Rescue, but the, the trailer yeah. is available yeah. uh, uh, online. Just look yeah. for that. All right, uh, Ted. Thanks a lot for Thank having you, lunch with us. And, uh, Great. You. Good to see you both. You're as energetic and fantastic as always. Well, as, as you, uh, best to your family. Uh, I just I was on TV with uh, your uh, daughter, the councilwoman, uh, Jenny. Jenny, uh-huh. and, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and she's uh, charming and um, uh, just had a great time. And um, always lovely to see you. Best to Holly. Thank you very and, much, Bill. Um, we'll do it again sometime. Okay. Uh, that's and, and, it. And keep the radio from hell rolling. We will. We'll try. Okay. All right. That's it. Thank it's you. the Let's Go Eat show. Uh, we're done. Thank you, Dylan, for producing the show. Uh, thank you, 50 West, uh, for uh, providing some food and a uh, place to record. And that's it. Uh, I'm Bill Allred. Remember, uh, should I change the sign off? No. I was going to change it from make mine a double don't. to leave me the bottle, but that's it. I'm Bill Allred. Remember, if you're pouring the drinks, make mine a double.